I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This has been an odd little series because we have jumped around to accommodate uh, the Lord's resurrection last week. We skipped over a portion of scripture, which is very unlike me. Uh, usually I just keep plowing through it no matter what, but uh, we, we uh, avoided really just half a verse. But it is filled with uh, concepts and information that really would have wrapped up and completed what we've been studying. And remember, which really goes all the way back to chapter 2, uh, verse 4. We're talking about being fitted together as a building of God, as the living stones. And we talked about uh, what Christ has done for us as the chief cornerstone, the foundation being the prophets and the apostles, and that we are fitted together as living stones, but we are there to offer sacrifice as well as to be the sacrifice that we are there as both those agents, as a royal priesthood, as well as the temple. And so we have both uh, aspects in us as the people of God that we are then uh, called upon as to uh, be, be uh, the offers of spiritual sacrifices. We've looked at that, the necessity that we depend upon the cornerstone, that we draw all attention to him. That is our goal, our aspiration of being fitted into the temple of God. The stones of the temple are not to be worshipped. The stones of the temple are not really to draw attention to themselves. The stones of the temple are to draw attention to the epicenter of the temple. Now, in Solomon's temple, uh, in, on the Temple Mount, that all drew your attention, drew your attention, and drew you into the Holy of Holies. That that became the place. And so, all as you came into the temple courtyard... All activity, everything drew you in. So you came across the, the sacrificial altar, and then that drew you into the, uh, to the wash basin uh, altar and, and drews, draws you into the holy place and then the holy holy. All of it centers into there and draws you, and even the two pillars that each had a name on the outside there draws you to that entry point into the temple proper uh, with the understanding that there is a holy of holy place that until the time of Christ, we could not enter unless you were the high priest and then only once a year and by the blood of bulls and goats, which had to be repeated over and over again, first for his own sins and others. But Jesus Christ obliterates all that and tears that curtain from top to down, uh, from top to bottom, uh, by the power of his sacrifice uh, being uh, that. So our sacrifices now are sacrifices of praise and worship. And we need to remember that, that, that as a priesthood, that is our role. That this is not just a religious activity we do, but this is our spiritual sacrifice. Now, when most pastors are going to talk about sacrifice, you usually figure that the next thing coming out of their mouth is going to be something about your tithes and offerings. That that's the only kinds of sacrifice we have. And certainly tithes and offerings were part of it. But when we come to the new, to the new covenant uh, of the cornerstone Jesus Christ, the sacrifices are praise and worship. And these are the ones that God is most interested in. And that really envelops not just your singing, but it involves all of your worship here together, that we are here to praise God, to elevate him in our hearts, in our minds, to the role that he rightly has, deserves uh, as our Lord and our Savior, as our Master, as our God, as the one to be exalted in our lives. And so we are called upon to offer up spiritual sacrifices, not, it's not really physical sacrifice. I didn't really talk about that too much when we went through that. But uh, typically, 
as I said, we, we just replaced bulls and goats and grain with, with dollars and cents and checks and electronic drafts. Uh, we, we have still maintained physical sacrifice and still focus on that, but we often neglect that we have a spiritual sacrifice that we are to give, and that is with the heart of thanksgiving and praise that are uh, is upon our lips. And so we have come down and we uh, skipped over, we, we looked at the first three descriptions of what we have received from the hand of God because of the chief cornerstone uh, that puts us into the building of God, puts us in the priesthood of God, uh, puts us into that wonderful relationship with the cornerstone to align ourselves up with, with it that we might add and direct attention and glory to it. We, looked, we, we skipped three in verse nine, the first half of verse nine. There's really several listed here, but we've already touched on the priesthood facet. We want to look at some of the other elements here. And so let's read 1 Peter chapter two, just verse nine. It says, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We have these four descriptions. And again, the reminder of what that's all about, and that is that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. And again, we studied the balance of this last week when we looked at the three contrasts of who, I, who we were once were without Christ to who we are in Christ. And, and from darkness to light, from not a people, from aliens to citizens, from those without mercy and condemnation to those with mercy. And so we looked at that last week, uh, and we want to go back now, and even though I've already touched on some of this last week, because when you are an alien to a citizen is one of these elements, it would have been more natural to follow them in that order given here. Imagine that. Uh, we're going to go back into this. And we're going to have to handle a couple of things. So we have four descriptions here in verse 9. One of them we've already handled. And that is the idea that we are a priesthood, a royal priesthood. Uh, so we want to look at the other ones. A chosen generation, a holy nation, his own special people. Now this is not uh, new to... Uh, these are not new words to the readers unless they are Gentile people. Uh, but for the... A dispersion for the those believers that have gone out who are largely Jewish and been scattered. Uh, these would have been very familiar phrases. And so let's go back to where they would be in the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, uh, for those who were, and that is in Exodus chapter 19. So let's go back there to Exodus 19, 5 and 6. We're going to see these exact same phrases used. And uh, there's a very important part of this that I want to pick out of that phrase that is not. Well, it is. It is in, in 1 Peter 2, uh, but you don't necessarily see it. That's, I should have marked this. Exodus 19. This is Israel, Mount Sinai. And this is the initiation of this covenant. The, we are just about ready to get the Ten Commandments. They are given to us in Exodus 20. And so here in Exodus 19, we have them really arriving there at Mount Sinai. And let's, let's pick up in verse 1, the narrative. It says, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. And here is God's declaration. Here is God's invitation, if you will. 
his offer of covenant. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which I'll speak to the children of Israel. A very simple, direct, concise offer. This is God's offer of relationship with Israel as a people. And these very same terms are what Peter is going to draw from. He's going to borrow them out of that old covenant and bring them into the new covenant. Because remember, the new covenant really isn't a separate building. It is the completion of the first. And so, and we have always struggled with that, and that's why you have covenant theologians and dispensationalists, because we, and, and, and the fact is, one says, well, we replace Israel. Uh, the other one says, well, Israel has its place, and we are kind of a separate building. And really, the truth is somewhere in between. Because as we looked at, the foundation of the building of God is, is the covenant of God with men, not only in Israel, but even back into the covenant of God with, with uh, Abel, the covenant of God with uh, Seth, the covenant of God with Noah. The covenant. We can go through the covenants of God and throughout those scripture, and all of them are essentially look alike. It said, if then, I will be your God, you'll be my people. And he offers this. Now he's going to offer it here in Exodus to a specific group of people, for a pretty large group, rather than to an individual. So he offered it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he's offering it to an entire people group. And, but it's still conditional. We haven't lost the condition. Remember that Abraham, Abram at the time, had to demonstrate his, his commitment to this covenant on several occasions, including the occasion of having to offer up his son Isaac uh, as a sacrifice. And so, are you going to obey me? Do you have the faith to obey me no matter what I ask of you, even if I ask the most precious thing of you? And Abraham passed that test, and the covenant was firmly established. Was it offered earlier? Certainly. It was offered the day he says, get you out of the land of Ur, the land I'll show you, and I'll make of you me. All of that was there uh, in essence, but it wasn't firmly established till much later it had to be con fully confirmed. Are you really going to follow after me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Uh, am I the most precious in your sight since I'm making you precious in my sight? So all of the covenants are that way, and our covenant with God is, is, is not very different. All of them pointed future, looking forward to a Christ. We have the privilege of being in a historical position to look back at the historical events of Christ that have already been established and now to conform ourselves to it. And so we find that the, the covenant agreement was um, an offer of God with these very same things. You'll be a treasure to me. You'll be my own special people. You'll be a treasure, special, uh, uh, I think it's an Exodus used there, we just read. It says, you'll be a special treasure to me above all people. And you'll be a kingdom of priests. And we looked at that two weeks ago, that whole concept of priesthood. But notice that, that, Paul, that, that God doesn't just sit here and say that a twelfth of you will be priests. He says, you as a nation will be priests. And this is very important as we go through Scripture in the future, 
that really, while we talk about the Aaronic priesthood, we talk about the Levitical system, that that, that was a representation for all of Israel. And that's why when we come later on and we find some of the prophets, well, not all of the prophets were of the tribe of Levi. Yet they were offering sacrifices many times. Uh, Samuel, and we have others that, that were, that you say, well, that's not of the tribe of Levi, so you can't do that, but, or not of the family of Aaron, but you, you can't do that. We even find David going in and doing uh, things that you wouldn't associate with that. And, and the question is, can they be prophets? Can they be representatives of God? Yes, because you have a kingdom, a nation of priests, is what God's intent was. The Levites were just representatives of how God viewed all of his people. And so this was the offer. And then he says that you'll be a holy nation. That word holy, again, is that set aside to God. That you'll be, you'll be set aside from all other nations, distinguishable from them, holy. You'll be your own nation. And that's why we have so many of the laws of Israel were how to be separate, how to be different, how to distinguish yourself from the other nations, and that you don't have the right to make a covenant with other nations, you've studied in the book of Joshua in Sunday school, that you don't have a right to these covenants because you have a covenant with me. And so the only way that you should have a covenant with other people is if I'm involved because we have a prior covenantal relationship. You don't get to go out there and independently have other covenants outside of this covenant. And that's why, because you are a holy nation, you are set aside to me. You are a special people, a treasure, that's a great word, we're going to look at that in a little bit. But you are set aside, and that holiness is what we are called to. And these are all the same elements that Peter says is in our relationship to God. But just as we looked at that pyramid, that you had the foundation stones laid, 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 and then the chief cornerstone, the capstone, and then now we're laying the stones from top to bottom, and to conform to that, to be fitted to that, to finish it off, we realize that the covenant relationship between God and, and people has never changed because God never changes. We can say, well, dispensationalism makes it God that works differently in different ways. Not really. He might be working in, among a different people group, but the covenant relationship essentially is the same. I'm pretty sure most of Israel knew that they could not keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the rest of the 600-some laws, that, they, that their sacrifices weren't sufficient in and of themselves to take away sin, but they were representative of something, going all the way back to Abel, and recognizing that, that Cain should have understood that, uh, that, th that we were looking forward to one because we have a prophetic utterance in the garden at the introduction to sin that what will be the, the final solution to sin will not be born of an animal, but born of a woman. I mean, we knew that from Genesis, right, at the beginning, right? And so it's not going to be born of sheep, it's not going to be born of goats, it's not going to be born of cows, it's not going to be born of pigeons, it's going to be born of a woman. That's the final solution to sin. And so every Israelite participating in this covenant understood that the law is just showing my sin. Now I have to come and submit myself. I have to bring this, this sacrifice, this blood sacrifice for a covering, but I have to keep doing it over and over again. So all the arguments of Hebrews come to bear there, and I'm sure that they were in the mind of many of the true Israelites that met this covenant offer.
and engaged in it. And so we come to the covenant offer here in Exodus 1, and we trans, we're going to translate that into 1 Peter 2. So let's tear it apart here a little bit. And the reason is because of the first word that you are a chosen generation. The first word in, in 1 Peter 2 is your chosen generation. So let's talk about the choosingness. Now, we, of course, take a very strong position against a Calvinistic model that would take this word, you are chosen generation, that God has selected you and, and only you to be recipients of his grace and mercy. That there is a select people that were selected even before any of them were born, but in the found, way in the mind of God that he selected, he chose uh, who would get saved, who would not get saved. And that kind of decretal Calvinism is simply uh, unacceptable, and we're going to demonstrate that. And so that always has, every time we come to a word like chosen, we have to address it because of the milieu that is out there. We just have to. And I hate to keep harping on it. I think you guys have pretty much got it down. Uh, but we come to Exodus uh, chapter 19, and we find out, well, what is... That which makes us the chosen ones, or the called ones. Jude, one talks, Jude talks about being called, the called ones. So, are, is God choosing and calling particular people, or is this a general invitation? And so, God has brought them to the mountain. Now, who did God bring to the mountain? On this occasion, was it just Israelites that God brought to the mountain? No, it says that a mixed multitude left Egypt to come to the mountain. So, who came to the mountain? Anyone that wanted to. Anyone who wanted to. If you wanted to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and lintels of your house, you would be identified and you would not suffer that tenth plague, you would be delivered from that, and you would be on your way out of Egypt with Israel. And I'll go even a step further. Even if you didn't do that, and you lost your firstborn son, and you go, what was I thinking? I'm going to follow them. Okay? There, there's no evidence that if you didn't do that, that you couldn't go. And so we have a mixed multitude coming out. And so you have Egyptians in there who are recognizing the God of these Israelites is the God of all the earth. He has humiliated all the false gods of Egypt through the course of these plagues. He is the author and the taker of life. And so I'm going to follow after them. We find this mixed multitude coming to the mountain of God. The condition is that now you, as a mixed group are going to become my chosen ones. So, how did God choose them? Did God then choose individual Egyptians to leave and family units? No, here's the offer. God comes to it. Please look at it. I have borne you on eagle wings, brought you to myself. So God brought them. He had them expelled from Egypt. Pharaoh couldn't wait to get rid of them. And, and Pharaoh was the most indecisive guy around during this time period. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be. So was the condition of the covenant getting to the mountain of God? No. Getting to the mountain of God was simply God demonstrating his general mercy to you. 
that you could now have access to hear the offer. You're basically getting to yourself in a place to hear the offer. And God says, I'm going to make it possible for you to hear the offer of covenant agreement, covenant relationship that I want to have with you. you I've brought you here. I brought you here to hear me from the, this mountain of God. Uh, uh, Jabal Musa is what, uh, Jabal Laws is mountain of God, mountain of, uh, mountain of law, mountain of Moses there in Saudi Arabia today. Still there. And so I brought you to this mountain so you could hear this. So God is bringing his, the invitation there is I'm going to bring you. You follow Moses, he'll take you where you need to go kind of a weird place. You got to walk through some weird things like right through the Red Sea, but uh, some fearful times. Maybe you don't have water. Maybe you don't have food. Seems like, and it seems like it's dangerous, but uh, God says, I'm, I brought you here to hear this offer. And when we engage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, we call those divine appointments, that God wants all men everywhere to hear the gospel. And that is the commission. Go, therefore, into all the earth and share the gospel with every creature. So we go out there and we share it with all people. And the reason he uses creature, uh, because in some people's minds, other people aren't really humans. We dehumanize them so that we can maltreat them. And this is what... The Nazis did to the Jews. This is what um, some tribes of Africa did to other tribes of Africa. We, we just make them less than human. We call them animals, and then we can maltreat them. Okay? And so uh, we, we, and this is sometimes what men have done to women. This is what we've done. And so it's wonderful that it says you go, go to every creature. Uh, share the gospel with them all. And for the Jewish mindset, those Gentiles are dogs. Why would I give them the gospel? See how that dehumanizing terminology? They're dogs. I don't even treat them like they're people, like they're men. But we are called to share the gospel. God desires the gospel to go out to everyone. He has that general invitation so that they can be confronted with the same offer. If you, then I will be your God. And you will be all these things. But you have to meet the condition. And here we are at the base of the mountain of God. You think certainly every single one of these people wants this relationship. Well, they do. They want the relationship. They left Egypt. They, 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 they crossed the Red Sea. They, they come up to that mountain. And now here they are hearing the very voice of God. And they're realizing this is a frightening thing. But sadly... While all of them wanted the covenant, they wouldn't meet the conditions of the covenant. I'm convinced that if I go out there and ask people, do you want to have eternal life? Do you want to have all your sins forgiven? Do you want to become a new person? Almost everyone says, yeah, that sounds great, that sounds great. And then we say, well, here's the conditions. Oh. Well, that's not what I had in mind. Why can't I do it my way? Right? Right? And so here we are at the mountain of God. I've come here now. What is the expectation of God? And God says, well, here's the condition. We're not in a covenant relationship yet, but now you are on the doorstep of it. In our model, we would be on their doorstep, right, with the gospel. But you were on the doorstep of having a relationship with God. You're not in the house yet. You're not part of the building. You're on the doorstep. You're out there in the court of the Gentiles. 
And, uh, but if you will indeed obey and keep my covenant, then all these things are yours. You see, the foundation of the covenant was obedience. Obedience and keeping our side. God will always be faithful in keeping his side. It is for us to now say, I will obey you. you that essentially says, you are my Lord Master. You are the one that I will heed, that I will serve. I will, I will fulfill what you require of us in this, in, in trusting in you and you alone. And of course, the very start of it all, we understand the Lord, he is God, and that we all have no other gods before him. We recognize, well, that that's, means we have an exclusive covenant relationship with God. And of course, it was the violation of that that got Israel into trouble many, many, many times and ultimately got them dispersed not only once, but more than once. So we find this basic conditional statement, if you will obey my voice, then you'll be a special treasure, you'll be a kingdom of priests, you'll be a holy nation. So we come, take this concept forward into 1 Peter chapter 2, and we already have seen the if clause presented to us uh, three, two or three weeks ago. We looked at that of what are you going to do with the cornerstone? What you do with him decides whether you're in a covenant relationship or not with him. It is not God's eternal choosing of you particularly. It is rather that God will, has chosen Jesus Christ and that those who either, who either submit to him and conform to him or they will be crushed by him or broken to pieces by him. This is the condition. The condition is whether you either believe in him or whether you stumble over him or are offended by him. What essentially Peter has expanded on, instead of where in Exodus we have, if you obey my commandments and keep my covenant, you have all this. Peter brings it into the era of post-Christ and says, what are you going to do with Jesus? If you stumble and offended at him, if you reject him, the stone the builders rejected, you reject him, then the offer isn't available to you. You are not going to have any of these benefits. But if you accept him, if you believe in him, if you identify him as that capstone to conform yourself to him and align yourself with him perfectly and be fitted into the building of God as a priesthood, now these things are yours. And so you are either disobedient and therefore condemned because you have stumbled and been offended at Christ, or you have believed in him and have followed after him. So obedience is the necessity. Now, that's just dealing with that word chosen. <laughs> to understand that we are not talking about an immutable decision by God in the past, but rather that God has offered a relationship to all who will come to him, and, but on his terms, not yours. And in that condition, that, that generation, that people group will receive Christ, are chosen. They are chosen to be the benefactors of the covenant. That we are, and so it's not that God has unchosen Israel, Rather, Israel unchose God. 
And that's why God says there's still a future for Israel. He declares that through not only Peter, but Paul, John, uh, that there's still a future plan of God for Israel if they would just turn to him. All they have to do is turn. And then he'll implement that. And, and the evidence from our prophetic understanding is that will happen, but it's going to take seven years of horrible maltreatment um, of the wrath of God for them to get to their senses and turn to Christ at, after Armageddon. But, we'll, but we see that the, the invitation is there. And while Israel as a nation is chosen against Christ, individual Israelites have chosen for him. We don't, I want you to notice that all of these terms are corporate terms. That is, they're, they're body terms, they're group terms, they're not individual. And that's a little disconcerting to us because we have always associated the decision to accept or reject Christ as a very private matter, a personal matter. And certainly you must personally receive Christ as your Savior. There is no doubt about that. But it is phenomenal to see the effect of when leadership turns to Christ within a family. That when a, a, a husband father accepts Christ over what is it, 97%, 93% of the time, uh, the entire family will come to Christ. I invite you to go through the book of Acts and see how many families came to know Christ. Now, some in the Reformed Church, for example, that if one of you is elect, then all of you are elect, regardless of how you may have believed. But that's not really what's represented there. What is represented there, really, is that we come to these decisions as a, as a group, that many times, dad hears the gospel, that Philippian jailer hears the gospel, where does he take those people? First place he takes them to his home, and in his home, they, with many other words, they shared Christ with them, Paul and Silas did, and then his whole family was baptized that night. It is that powerful of a time, and the same thing with Cornelius, we get to go through with Lydia, we have all their household, don't think of household just as their spouse and kids, many times it was their servants and their extended relatives and whoever they would gather. In Cornelius, we had a whole group there. Probably every one of the of sub-commanding commanders under him as a centurion were there. Certainly all of his family. Certainly all of his servants. That would have been his whole household. Those that were commonly in and out of his table. And we have kind of lost track of that a little bit of coming in, and while we have individualized salvation, certainly there must be an individual commitment, we're going to see many individuals in Israel that are going to be destroyed because they didn't obey, including the mixed multitude, right? They couldn't wait to cook their meat. They had to eat it raw uh, when they got quail, and God destroyed them because they didn't obey. Um, and so we come to this, and we recognize there is an individual decision that has to be made, but we in the course of doing that, we have devalued the concept of being social units. That social units should be coming to Christ as well. Entire family units, uh, entire societies. And we've seen this somewhat on the mission field happening in, interesting, we call them, <laughs> what do we call those groups that are not as advanced as us, uh, 
primitive. We call them primitive. There we go. I lost that word for a second. We call them primitive, but they are so attuned to that they are a society that when we sent missionaries into those primitive cultures, we find that as soon as the head guy accepts Christ, what do they find out next? The whole tribe does. Boom, 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 boom. I'm not talking about something like the Caesar getting up there and saying we're all a Christian nation now. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm saying that as soon as this person receives Christ, the chief of this primitive tribe, because of the social structure of it, they understand that we're going to follow that leadership, and so we're going to listen. If he listens and humbles himself to it, then certainly since he is the greatest among us, we should also give consideration to that, and they come to him as an entire unit. And this is not on one or two occasions. This is several times this has happened. And what is the basis of that? The basis of that is understanding social units. And our advanced culture has abandoned them. Haven't we? Come on. Even the family unit is a disaster at this point. And I talked to some of you about your family, and, and well, I've got family there and there and there, but they don't, you know, this is their exes, and this is the baby daddy, and, and none of them are living together as units, let alone as a social group, as an extended family. We have cubicalized our society. So we all live in little cubicles. You go into the Ecuadorian tribes, my wife and I watched the Three Eights of Splendor, and they, and she talked about going into the Alka Indians, and that, you know, you have these shelters, but there are no walls. You don't live with walls, you don't, and there, there is no concept of privacy. We're a social unit. And no wonder when one or two came to know Christ that pretty much all of them then gathered to hear the, the gospel and respond. But we have isolated ourselves. And so the offer here, you might say, well, this is for me individual, but no, the you there is plural. You all. You as a group. And so, and it's, it's kind of interesting this year of all the past years to think about how isolated people are. See, I haven't even talked about the last year. I'm just talking about our advanced civilization, how we have compartmentalized our social units and broken them down. And that we no longer associate with us. It's me, me and mine. It's not we and us. And that's really a modern phenomenon because of technology and the social uh, things that are going on. Uh, we have come to that. Now in the last year, we've taken it to a whole new level, haven't we, of isolation. And we have people living in the same house who are afraid to be six feet from each other and wearing masks and condemning those of us who don't as foolish. We are talking about being a people, a generation, a nation. These are all corporate. These are body language. This is, this is group language. That we are a people of God. And we have lost it. We have lost 
tabs with that. We think, well, my salvation is an individual thing. Well, you must individually accept it, but you must exercise it in the, in the, in the confines of, <laughs> confines, in the, in the body of Christ. So you are members of the body of Christ. So you are chosen generation. That's plural. You are a, what's the next one? The special, uh, royal priesthood. That's a plural. It's not a royal priest. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation set apart to him, as we saw in, in Exodus, that you are distinctly different. And maybe one of the greatest differences is that we're still family. That's becoming glaringly different. That we don't mind getting together and spending time together. We prefer it, in fact. That we have a commitment to the social aspect of um, who we are as a people of God, that we're not isolated. I'm not going to sit at home in front of my computer and call that worship. I'm not going to sit at home and isolate myself and say, this is how I'm going to draw closer to God. This is how I'm going to please God. This is going to how I'm going to be a part of the people of God. No. God's intention is that we gather in his name, that we be this people, plural, together in worship. And that's what's described here that our praises, that our worship should be all focused on being corporately, that is a body, as a body, as a group, worshiping God together. And then finally, we are his own special people. And we'll want to talk about this a little bit. So we are chosen generation. We talked about being chosen, that chosenness is based upon your a response to the offer of God of a relationship. We've talked about being a holy nation, being set apart to God, uh, distinct from the world, that these are terms of group, and that we are then uh, should look different, we should sound different, we should uh, come out and be separate. And yes, I am a separatist, which means that uh, not that I'm not living in the world, but I'm not going to be of the world. I'm not going to try to look like the world to satisfy them, I'm going to uh, <laughs> be different and distinguishable. And not that I turn my nose up at them, but rather I invite them to something greater, to something better than what the world is. And so in my dress, in my uh, appearance, in my speech, in my countenance, I want to be different, so different that people say, what is with you? Why are you like that? What do you have? There should be a distinguishment there between those who are the people of God versus those who are not the people of God. And in these times, in these days, uh, that distinguishment may very well be that I, I'm not afraid. I'm not, uh, you cannot make me afraid. I'm pretty sure the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so I, I, I don't think it matters how big the enemy is or how teeny tiny the enemy is. I'm not afraid. For he who has called me, who has chosen me, is faithful. I am his set-apart people. I am living my life for him, and I am not to come into a covenant agreement with others outside of this covenant agreement. And that is relayed by Paul and Corinthians about do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I'm not going to come into a covenant agreement with you 
that is outside of my covenant agreement with God. And so if you are in a covenant agreement with God, we can have this agreement between ourselves. Um, but, and certainly, if you are a stranger that has, comes into my nation, then I'm going to treat you in the same covenant relationship as if you were one of my people. But I'm not going to make a covenant with you. I'm just treating you well, hoping that you will come into covenant relationship with the same God I have a covenant relationship with. So there were rules in Israel as treating the stranger the same as the kinsman in your home, in your nation, in your land. But while you treat them well and kindly, and in the covenant laws, you also recognize that I'm not going to come into agreement with them because that would be outside of the parameters, and that still exists. That's not, that, that's not just Old Testament. That is repeated in the New Testament uh, on multiple occasions, that this is who you once were. What does light have to do with darkness? What does good have to do with evil? You know, why are we so tied in and connected there? We should come out and be separate that we might draw them to it. So we're a holy nation. And then the third layer, you are a special people. Now you'll notice that these are almost in reverse order of Exodus. Exodus starts off and you'll be a special treasure. And I want to end there. Exodus starts there. Peter ends with this one. You're going to be a special people. Now we use his own special people. I don't want to miss that own. Uh, his own special people. We use the term special uh, way too much uh, to refer to different things. Uh, we want everyone to feel special, uh, and usually that means that we want to have self-value. We want to uh, feel good about ourselves, and, and that's really not in this word, that concept isn't really what this is about. Uh, this is about not how you feel about yourself. This is about how God feels towards you. And not just feels, but is committed to you. This is really tied to the concept of love. That I will, you are going to be a special people, my own special people. You're going to be my treasure and I don't think we often think of ourselves as that. Now, we already use the word precious in, in 1 Peter 2 to refer to who? Jesus Christ. He is the precious one. That was up there in verse 4. Keeping to him as a living stone, rejected thee by men, but chosen by God and precious. So Jesus Christ was that precious one. And so that concept is now being carried over. As Jesus Christ is the capstone and you conform yourself now to Jesus Christ and you align yourself with him, you become that precious treasure. You become that which God values. And it's not about how you feel about yourself. It's not about whether you are special or not. It's that God has made you special. And so I can take a very common thing. I can take a very common material object or a pet or something like that, and there'll be nothing particularly great about it. But because I have some kind of, of memory associated with that, I can draw that out and say, well, this is special to me. Well, I pick up a rock. Okay, well, this rock is special to me. I'm going to keep it for the, with me the rest of my life. It's a rock. Well, is there anything... in? inherently special about the rock. No, it's what you have applied 
you have applied meaning to that rock in association with something uh, that is going on in you. It's not the rock that is really special. I mean, they're everywhere, correct? Rocks are everywhere. There are different kinds of rocks, but they're all over the planet. They're, they're rocks. They're special, right? Rocks are special, right? No, they're not. They're ordinary. Rocks are ordinary. I know you walk around, kick one, says, oh, that looks pretty, and pick it up and carry it around. You know, and, and I've been around rock hounds, and I'm like, man, you got issues. I mean, I can just kick that one over there, and then it'll look like that one, you know. And, uh, but this one's special. Well, no, you've, you have assigned value to it. It has, is not inherently valued. And we come and says, well, I have inherent value now because I'm a special person to God, and therefore I am, a, I am this. I'm the special you know, I'm a princess. Well, there are no princesses in God's plan. Only princes, by the way, because we're all brethren. <clears throat> well, I'm special. I hear this, and I'm like, no, you're ordinary. It is his own special piece. It is what he, the value he has assigned to you in his own heart. Not he has made you valuable, but rather he has placed you in a valuable place in his life, in his heart. He has made you a treasure. And think about the things you treasure. There are some things I treasure that the world thinks nothing, has, has zero value to them. But there are things that I treasure. You know, and, and so, and my wife treasures, and, and we put them in little, you know, she, you know, here's a little piece of hair. Well, the hair is everywhere. Okay, and at this point, you know, when I'm cleaning out the drains of the tub, I'm like, well, here's some hair, you know, treasure this. You know, no, I'm cleaning out the drain of the tub, it's disgusting. But we have this special little lock of hair from each of the kids that is taped into their little baby book, and it's a treasure. Right? We've taken something ordinary, and we have assigned it value. We have become God's special, his own special people. This doesn't make you extraordinary. It makes God's value of you extraordinary. He has made you his treasure. Do you know that people, um, by the way, when I talk about just rocks, you know, you treasure rocks too, okay? All gold and silver is just hunks of rock. That's all they are. And, and we find out what you treasure compared to what you spend those things on. Uh, and uh, when we come to God's value system, though, God looks at you and says, you're my special treasure. You are my own. And when we read through the Old Testament, we see how God speaks about Israel. They are not dispassionate words that God uses. Are they? They're full passion. Is it always good passion? They're all pa always passionate. You might say, well, God loves them and hates them. Well, that's because they're his treasure. He's passionate about them. The opposite of love really isn't hate. Hate is just the other side of it, because when you do evil, uh, my kids think I hate them. Well, I hate the evil they've done, but I only care because I'm passionate about them, because they are my special treasure. The opposite 
of love is really hate. The opposite of love is I don't care. God cares. And claiming some neutral, I don't care position is as, as, as disassociated as you can be from someone. You have zero relationship. And so I watched these other people, and without the love of God in my life, I would look at them and say, oh, they deserve that. And I don't care if they're suffering. And we should. God cares. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God has elevated everyone in his value system to be willing to send his son to die for them. Now those who accept his son, imagine the level you've just raised again. You've raised to this level because he sent his son to die for you, but he's going to raise you up to even a higher level. You are my own special people. I am going to treasure you. And that means that when you go wrong, I'm going to chasten you to bring you back straight. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines every son. I don't discipline people I don't care about. I discipline my children. They might say, they think I hate them, and so they yell out, I hate you, right, after you discipline them. Because <laughs> they don't understand. The passion relationship of being a special person in someone's eyes is passionately both that I'm going to love you immensely, but I'm also going to hate your evil immensely, equally immensely. And so I'm going to chasten you, I'm going to discipline you because I desire this. And so we are his own special people. We ordinary sinners who have accepted the capstone of our faith, Jesus Christ, and want to conform ourselves to him. God says, I treasure you. And that doesn't bring glory to me. I'm a treasure of God. No, God treasures me an ordinary rock. I'm just an old gray rock, no special shape. You wouldn't ever pick out of a yard of rocks. See, we're in New Mexico, I talk like that. If I was back east or up north, they would say, what? A yard of rocks? Who has a yard of rocks? Well, we do. That's our yards. Um, just an ordinary rock. But God says, I treasure you. I'm going to take you out of the ordinary, and I'm going to bring you in as my own possession. And this is what Jesus describes that when he talks about being in his Father's hand. We are his own treasure, and no one's going to take you out of his hand. He's going to hang on to you because you have clung to Christ. Because you have made him your rock, he now is your rock. The rock of conformity is the capstone, but the rock of refuge is what the psalmist talks about. When I conform myself to the capstone, I have the refuge of the rock. I have the, the cleft, the, the place to shelter in. And he will always provide that. And so when we read the words of God to Israel, and you see no dispassionate about it. He's not neutral towards them. He is, he is intensely passionate I will bless you or I will curse you. There's really no in-between, it seems like. 
You know, you get on this mountain, you get on that mountain, you guys just got done reading Deuteronomy, what are we into, halfway through Joshua in our Bible reading, and at the end of Deuteronomy there, you know, Moses says, you guys are going to get on this side, you guys are going to get on that side, you're going to yell at each other, and then Joshua, they actually do it. You know, you're going to get cursed! Well, you're going to be blessed! Same God. Why? Because you're a special treasure. You're his own. He cares enough to both curse you and bless you. Because he wants you in a right relationship. He wants you to be his people. Set aside, be a holy nation, his chosen generation. He wants you as a body. And so, um, while we think, and we have been convinced because we have been in this milieu of individualized Christianity for so long that you can make those decisions by yourself and, and can implement them individually, we know from God's word that that was never his intent. God was, made us, and from the very beginning, even before there was sin, the first thing wrong with creation is that man was by himself. And it wasn't good. And spiritually, it cannot be good. Ever. And so all of this offers within the context, again, of us being together as a body of Christ, as a family, as a one stone in a wall of stones, that we are fitted together, fitted to Christ, yes, but fitted to the stone right beside me as well. That we are fitted together to be the building of God, the temple of God. And all of this is, 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 sets us aside. It sets us to be holy, sets us to be chosen, sets us to be special treasures of God, distinct. We who are just ordinary people who have simply humbled ourselves before the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time and your word and for this offer that you have put before men throughout our history, all the way back to the garden. If you obey, we'll have fellowship. If we obey, you'll be my people. If you obey, you'll be my treasure. Lord, we thank you that you've offered that to us here today. Not to each, only each one of us, but to all of us together. That we can walk in unity, the bond of peace, bond of love, the bond of Christ. To serve you faithfully as your, as your particular special people, as your loved ones, as your nation, and your priesthood, your temple. Lord, we thank you that you have plucked us out of the ordinary to make us your treasure. We know that we are not deserving of it. We know that we add no value to that. It is all in that one Jesus Christ. We rejoice in all that he has accomplished for us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.